Audio sermons from Peachtree Christian Church. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he mixed it to tenants and went away to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect this produce. But the tenants seized his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he said to son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord doing, the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produce the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. The word of the Lord. And please be seated. My friends, it is a delight to be with you in worship. Many things are happening that are distracting us. One, if you're like me, you're taking notice of the fact that our attendance looks like too many people went on holiday travel stayed up late watching the Braves, stayed up late watching Tech. Yeah, a couple of you, you're so thankful for a bad play call, right? And then some of you are reading this text that's very difficult and challenging and hearing about uh, people showing up to a vineyard and being murdered. And at the very same time, these front lights are going on and off. As it's talking about religious people doing bad things. And I see that some of you are a little bit eerie about that. Yes, it is October. It's the month of Halloween, but that is, we don't have a control for that. Like there's like a dial up here in the pulpit, make the lights go up and down. So, you know, I don't know if it goes off, it goes off. Okay. We don't believe in superstition. It's not a sign from God. (laughs) Is it God? Friends, let me give you a great gift to practice the presence of God together. If you could find yourself in a position where you can feel comfortable and receiving freshly the spirit of God. And I wanna give you the gift of these breaths as you prepare your mind and your heart to hear this story anew. With gratitude, take a deep breath in. And breathe out. Breathe in.
Now empty all the air inside of your lungs. Breathe in the breath of God. God, we have come here because we have need of you, and we ask that you meet us in this place. God, our creator, our redeemer, and our constant companion. I confess that whether anyone else realizes it or not, without you, I can do nothing. Send your spirit freshly in this place and wherever my voice may be heard. The renewal would mark our minds and our hearts as we seek to follow your kingdom pathways that were marked by your son, our Savior, who is Christ the Lord and God's people together say, Amen. There is no end to anxiety over faith in our present age. Are we living rightly? Is the world losing faith? Will the next generation believe? Remember how everyone seemed to believe so long ago, yet at the same time, when we really think of history, all the people who seemed to believe in society upheld certain cultural norms and mores that were radically unjust. What is faith? How will it be maintained and grown? And how will it be passed onward? And what will the signs be of our culture if faith seems to recede? There is no end to the anxiety of faith in its place in our present age. I was driving with a friend through a town and we went past the Capitol building and there outside of it was these two large monuments erected on the monuments for the Ten Commandments, and people were protesting the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments often find themselves memorialized around courts of law or, or, or state houses because our rule of law in our country has in some way, shape, or form connection to the Judeo-Christian worldview, at least at its foundation. That is to say that some of the foundational starting points for how we deem to think about right and wrong in our society at least have the germs of thought within those great commandments. And so maybe that's the reason that some people decided to put those there, or as is often the case, much later on in the history of the courthouse in the question, a politician wanted to curry favor with different voting blocks and sought fit to raise money to have the Ten Commandments erected. Well, you know, there are endless stories of this, and I don't even know what was going on in that one place that my friend and I were driving by on that one particular day, but I could feel his anxiety because the protesters around wanted the, the Ten Commandments removed. And then this was in the shadow of that news story about how in Wisconsin or somewhere else in the Midwest, a place you wouldn't have imagined, uh, this local Satanist group wanted to protest the Ten Commandments by having statues that were so-called satanic erected there in the same place right next to the, to the Ten Commandments to show that this was a, a place that was separate church and state and there was the freedom of religion. And the symbols, of course, gave most people some pause and fear could feel the weight of his fear, and he blurted out, we got to do something. We should protest. We should write letters. We should talk to 
our Congress people. We should make sure this doesn't happen in, in our state capital. And I remember as I heard all that feeling caught up in the tumult of anxiety. When we get thinking with the anxious brain, it's a rumination that can be like a cyclone in a living room. It just goes and goes and goes and doesn't have anywhere to escape, but it makes a mess wherever it is. And so the anxiety was rising in me, but then I heard the voice of the inner theologian, a teacher from seminary days gone by who, who asked certain questions that were tough questions. And I decided to ask my friend the tough question that had been posed to me at one point. What difference does it really make if we have the Ten Commandments at the courthouse or not? It seems like a rather controversial question. But what the question is designed to do is find out what we think is really at stake. He figured, well, it's got to say something about what's right and what's wrong. It's, it's a, and I said, well, doesn't the court commit itself to a certain sense of justice and fairness given our laws? And at the end of the day, he was pressed and he got to the point of saying, well, we just can't lose. If we take the commandments down, it's a sign that Christianity is losing our world. I'm not sure that that's true, or maybe it is. My reading of Christianity is that there's a lot of times it looks like we lose when in fact that is the picture of winning. And Jesus says whoever would want to gain their life, would lose it. And certainly to take a F on an ethics test instead of cheating like everyone in class is in some sense a success for the Christian of good conscience. But nevertheless, successes and failures, they are camouflage and everywhere mysterious. They are in Jesus' parables too. Don't forget when you read the word parable, another way you could read that word is the notion of riddle. Jesus is in the temple, and this is one riddle, I mean parable, that is told amongst two other parables or riddles. And it's an allegory. And it's meant to disrupt the apple cart. It's meant to unveil what's true and deeply true in the hearts of the religious people of the day. So he tells the story. He's not making friends with a story. Jesus doesn't make friends with stories or his probing questions. He talks about a vintner, someone who owns a vineyard. And he says that they're going to go away. And so they got hired help people to come around and make sure that the land itself is tended to, that the grapes themselves are cared for and that the product that gets made is done correctly. But some other folks come in because so they're called to come in and help out. And these hired hands. These stewards get angrier or fearful. I'm not sure what, but they decide to actually have these people killed. Oh, it's already a challenging story. It's a gruesome story, and it gets only worse and darker because the vintner's son, who belongs in the vineyard, the vineyard is his birthright. Now he shows up, and the people out there, these stewards, these caretakers for the vineyard, they think to themselves, well, now here is the son of the vintner. Now he's coming to claim what is his as inheritance. And they have a sense of ownership now. It's ours, something to possess. 
We can't lose this, they think. And so they do murder to him as well. And then Jesus continues talking and teaching and telling them things. And he quotes from what we call the Old Testament. I like calling it the First Testament. Uh, for Jesus, it's just proper Bible. And he quotes about how the, the, the cornerstone, this chief building block in a building, this cornerstone has been rejected by the builders. Huh. Well, as allegories go, each different character in the story plays a different character on the scene in Jesus's day. And in fact, they are in the room where it happens. He tells the story, he talks about this vintner, the vintner, the one who owns the vineyard, this is God. And the vineyard, this is at least Israel, if not the kingdom of God, wherever the rule and reign of God will continue to go with God's people. The thing that we are praying for to be on earth as it is in heaven, even in our present age. Now, the people who were called to be the, the hands who help make this thing go working, yeah, a lot of bad readings of the text stop by concluding that these are Jewish folk. Because you can see the, where this goes. Oh, there's Jewish folk and they reject people and they reject the son. Okay, the son's obviously Jesus. And so a lot of people have read this over the centuries to say, well, this is how the Jews reject Jesus and go the wrong way. Well, careful, friends. Be careful. This is why theology matters. This is not an anti-Semitic text. And we have to be very careful not to read it that way because generations of people have manipulated meanings to, to read that in here. You see, Jesus, the great Jewish man, was not anti-Jewish at all. He is not throwing away Jewishness. He is parsing Judaism of his day. And he's saying that these people who are the hired hands, these stewards, they're somebody in particular that belong to the people of God. Later, he lets us know these are the scribes and these are the Pharisees, the religious elite. Oh, to be elite. I remember when we were shopping for our home, we didn't want to move to some neighborhood and our realtor said, what? That's elite there. Don't you want to be the elite? The upper echelon, the upper crust, those in the know, those who can make it rain, those who have power and authority. These are the religious elite. And they're the ones in question. Because then there are other workers who come along on behalf of the vintner. And these are the prophets of old and the prophets of present day. And here's the thing. They get killed. Now, that's the thing about a prophet. Prophets do very risky work. And we, we praise prophets in 2023 when we're reading about prophets from centuries and centuries and millennia ago. But in those days and times when the prophet, he or herself stood on behalf of God and spoke truth to power, people wanted those prophets in shackles and dead because they were gadflies. They upset the status quo because they questioned the elite. Many of God's good prophets and prophetesses had been killed. And then there is the son. 
And in the allegory, this is Jesus and he is to come and he will be rejected too. In fact, he will be turned upon. In fact, he will be killed. Jesus' own self-understanding is from that old reading from the Bible where he says, the cornerstone has been rejected by the builders. Jesus is the cornerstone, the cornerstone of the foundation of the house of God, the foundational cornerstone for the church of God, the foundation for which redemption will be built upon. And it is that very foundation that the people of God, the so-called elite, the so-called workers of God, the so-called morally upright, those who vote the right way, who have the right wingtip shoes, those are the ones who are going to stomp on his head with their wingtips. Even the religious elite are capable of abusing the heart of God. Even the religious elite are capable of making corrupt God's heart for the world. It's happened for as long as there's been people who call themselves God's people. We know this to be true, it's touched our shores, it's touched our own present age. We all live in the wake of a massive church abuse scandal. Your mind went quickly to the church called the Roman Catholic Church and the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of predation stories that took place and the stories that lay hidden under the cloak of darkness where predators were not prosecuted, nor were they uh, called out for their sins, but they were moved so that uh, greater redemption perhaps could happen, or for fear that if we, we share all of these sins, then, then there's going to be such a turning of uh, a, a attitude against God. It's better for God's will that we protect the, the cleanliness and the purity of the gospel, even though we make a mess of it. We've got to hide it. And even with those good intentions of not sullying the gospel, it only makes it worse to hide that which goes in the dark. It only makes it worse to hide the trauma and the pain and the vile, wicked, evil done to children. It's not just Catholic churches, it's all churches. It's anywhere there's people. Abuse runs rampant. You and I are not far from it. heart of God can be disrupted and broken by God's chosen ones as God reaches his heart out toward the world. Let's go back in time since it is October and it's Halloween season, one of my favorites. Let's go to Salem and think about the Salem witch trials. Most people don't realize that there's a Salem town and a Salem village and really what's going on in Salem is a rivalry between these two organizations, these two communities, and it had a lot to do with taxes, and it had a lot to do with church belonging and membership, and there's a whole lot of old, old, old laws that have words that we don't use anymore in our legal books, but these old laws made certain people in and certain people out, and it was all rather questionable, and the thing that you could do best and you still can if you want to win as you make the other people others. And you can otherize them and demonize them and then you can beat them. Our whole political partisan structure is based on that to this day. 
But what's worse is that in that day and age, America was Puritan. And the Puritans had a theology about America. The idea was that we were going to make through the, the force of our will and the sweat of our brow and the moral superiority and the brightness of the white cultured men of Europe, we were going to bring the kingdom of God here. And so America was then called the city shining on a hill. Abraham Lincoln, my favorite, he would repeat that heresy. America's not the city on a hill. What's the city on the hill in the Bible? What is the city shining on a hill in the scriptures? It's only the church bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's only the church universal, the church without borders. And so theology matters because it allowed everyone to become so corrupt that they could treat people who were different or who maybe sinned in such evil, evil ways to scarlet letter anyone. It makes sense if you're trying to reestablish the kingdom of God by moral might. And what's worse is a theology that we continued in this country called manifest destiny. That between this coast and the next coast is all ours to make for the kingdom of God. And so therefore, if you were found as a human person, in between these coasts, and you did not name Christ as King or Lord or were baptized into Christ, you were half a person. And so a lot of the Native Americans of this country were actually evangelized by Scottish Presbyterians, and in fact, they were put into boarding schools where they were, the savageness was beaten out of them. Do you hear that? I speak truth to you beaten out and sometimes killed out of them. In Europe, if you don't want me to pick on our soil in Europe, it was called the theology of discovery. The idea was that European culture had grace, and if it went to other places and the people did not have the grace of Christ, and they were not people, but they were on the side, not of culture, but on the side of nature. They were not people, they were things. And things can be treated as products and objects, and things can be slaves. They become resources. Oh, gosh. The heart of God can be broken and manipulated and used by even those who are called to be about and agents of that heart of God. It happens. It happened so long ago in a vineyard. It happens to this day. And that's why theology matters. It keeps us in check. It keeps us with the guardrails on. It makes us hear clearly what the heartbeat of God is, especially if we submit our own selves to it. How do you build a house? How do you build a church? How do you build a redemptive scheme in this world, friends? Well, you got to have a strong foundation. You got to have a cornerstone, something worthy of attaching all the other stones to. You got to have something strong for you to cling on to. And so it means we need to be measured, sober of thought and mind. The demons need to be exercised from our bodies, the demons of anger and violence and vengeance and being right at all costs need to be expelled. 
for the sake of love and for the sake of listening and hearing other people for the sake of grace. And when you do that, you look with clear eyes and pure hearts. I was once called to be a youth minister and the church was a lovely church, but here's the one problem with it. Nobody would want to volunteer or help with the youth. I couldn't do it alone. I had too many kids in the senior high, let alone the middle school. I couldn't do it alone. And there was a guy, and I saw him about once a, once a month. He would come sing on the worship team. He had long hair. He looked really cool. had a really deep bass voice. Uh, but I only saw him once a month. Turns out he only came to church once a month to sing for his mama because she wanted him to. They sang together on a worship team. He lived kind of a wayward life, but he was trained in the way of the gospel. He had just chosen not to take it seriously yet. So I went to go find this guy. I found him working at Shoe Carnival. Y'all ever been to a shoe carnival? You go in and there's a guy like running like records like a DJ, like doing all kinds of deals on shoes with a microphone. That's what he was doing. <coughs> Excuse me. He was sitting there calling people up, and it was just, he, was, he was hamming it up up there, and I watched for a while. So I got in line to talk to him, and I was about 20 deep because at Shoe Carnival, everything is apparently cheap, and people are getting deals, and, and I had no shoes. I just stood there waiting. And when he looked up, he saw me, and he goes, you work at my church. And I said, you don't very, go very much. He said, that's true. I said, I want you to be my right-hand man. I want you to come work with these middle school kids. I want to teach you how. I need you. And then he looked like he had seen a ghost. His jaw was open, his skin, the blood went from his face. He was white. And I said, what's the matter? And he just paused for a moment. See, he was trained in the way of the gospel, though he wasn't living in it yet. His dad taught him those Bible passages about how a teacher better take a serious, long, hard look at themselves before they teach because they will be called to account doubly for how they live and what they say. It's serious business being in the role of a minister. He came back and he told me what, what he thought. And I thought, man, he's just, he's just going a little over the top with this. I just need his help. But I'm glad he did. I'm glad he took it seriously because he looked himself in the mirror and he realized he needed to hang on to the cornerstone and Christ became the corner of his heart and his life and he built himself into that establishment. He was a piece in the foundation of that church built on the foundation and this man is a great minister of the gospel to this day. But he didn't go into it lightly. He didn't think about uh, how he could do this for his own interest's sake or his own glory. And no, no, has he ever really ever taken the gospel that he's been given and figured out a way to manipulate it for his own benefit. Trust me, my friends, ever since Constantine and ever since the church was made re religiously legal in the Roman Empire, ever since Constantine to Trump and Biden, people have been trying to use religion rather than allow a religion to use the world. Trust me, be suspicious of them all. Be suspicious of the people who are going to promise you lots of things. Because remember, even the religious elite can manipulate the heart of God. 
Right now, I hear a rock and roll song in my head by Lenny Kravitz. You hear it? Some of you don't know who I'm talking about, but Lenny Kravitz has got the song, Are You Gonna Go My Way? Do you know that song is about Jesus? That song is about Jesus. Look it up. And he keeps singing over and over and over and over. Are you going to go my way? Because I got to, got to know. <laughs> the allegory is another story. It's another riddle asking the church and asking church 2,000 years ago. It asks the church today. Jesus is asking now, are you going to go my way? Because if we try to take Jesus the way we want to go, we'll miss it. Don't forget, friends. Don't forget who you are. And don't forget from how far God has brought you. And don't forget the mistakes you've made. And don't forget the pains in your heart. And don't forget the love that Jesus has spilled in his blood for you. Don't forget the fact that God has called you, no matter what it is you've done or what you will do. Don't matter what? Don't forget who you are. You represent the object of God's heart. Are you going to go his way?